Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am, as always, David Bax. And thank you for listening. David? What's up? How's it going? Pretty good. It's Mother's Day. It is. So, did you have a good Mother's Day? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't do anything special for Mother's Day. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like, I was out with my uh, my uncle and his wife and uh, their new parents, so it's it's her first Mother's Day, and so... So it was weird, just like, uh, we were at this restaurant, and everybody was like, was like, hey, you know, are you guys have? are you, like, they asked all of us, are you guys having a good Mother's Day? It's like, yeah, fine. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't I'm, mean, Mother's Day to me is the three or four days before when I have to remember to put something in the mail. <laughs> uh, amen to that. Um, so yeah, okay, so you had a, you had a pretty good Mother's Day. Um, so what, uh, okay, now, David, you've got a... St- David let me in on a story a few days ago. That I can't believe I hadn't told you. You hadn't told other. me, and I'm and the minute I heard I'm like, you have to tell this on the podcast because it's so fascinating to me. David, take it yeah, away. Yeah, I, I can't believe, I've known you almost ten years, I can't believe this has never come up. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not a great storyteller, uh, you right. know, uh, so hopefully this, this will be interesting. But um, uh, I want to talk about the one and only fist fight I've ever been in. I was in... Uh, Fifth grade, I believe, uh, waiting at the bus stop. All right. And uh, a couple of the guys, you know, were, uh, you know, the kids, the uh, the boys from my neighborhood. They were talking about uh, movies that they liked. Yeah. And especially this one kid who had one of those dads who took him to R-rated movies, you know. And yeah. So he was talking about, I don't know, probably like Terminator 2 had probably come out yeah. fairly recently at that point. Maybe a couple of years. But anyway, I don't know. He... Uh, he was just talking about all the movies that he liked, and they were all these sort of big action movies that I wasn't allowed to see. Yeah. And so I started talking about, I was like, naming all the movies that I liked, you know, Ghostbusters, or uh, uh, I'm trying to complete blank, but basically all comedies. Yeah. Uh, everything I named was a comedy, and he started making fun of me. Yeah. He started calling me a pussy, because all I liked was the PG-rated comedies. You don't like comedies, you know, you don't like, uh, you don't like action movies, you're such a pussy, you know. And uh, I got so steamed up over it <laughs> <laughs> that I shoved him, and he fell on his back. Oh, my gosh. And uh, not only did this kid... Okay, this... Now that I think about it, this kid's dad was an asshole. Okay. Not only did his dad take him to R-rated movies, his dad was also really into boxing and had taught his <laughs> fucking nine, ten-year-old son how to box. Hmm. So this kid jumped up, reared back, and fucking popped me right in the face. Hard. Okay. And then the bus came, and that was it. <laughs> and you guys had to just, you know, you had to get up and be like, "All right, let's." It's off to school for me. Yeah, and yeah, and then <coughs> I'm sure the next weekend I was over at his house playing action figures again. Kind of. <laughs> I'm but, fascinated uh, by this guy's dad because I literally get the feeling that this guy's dad was just like didn't realize he was a dad. Like he just he's like I'm going to an, he's like I'm going to this movie. It's like, oh, take uh, you know, take Bobby along, and it's like, oh, right, okay, I'm not changing the movie, I'm saying, and then it's just like, but that's I'm not going what to- he was like because here's another thing about this, this family that I didn't really realize at that point, but it came to realize later as we got older. Uh, his dad would not let him and his sister listen to uh, what he called rock and roll music. All right, that's weird, I- isn't it weird? Yeah, that's very contradictory. It's a very weird dynamic over there. I mean, it makes me wonder if, you know, he he associated like rock and roll with like you know, 
sex. Like maybe there's a lot of risque lyrics. Like there's plenty of people out there well, who his his dad was um, a, a strict Catholic. Oh, okay. Uh, and I remember that being a weird thing in the house because his mom was not Catholic, and yeah. so every Sunday morning he had to go to church with his dad, and his mom just stayed home. Hmm. But so it's weird that his dad was so strict, and yeah. his mom didn't go to church at all. But uh, anyway, so that that story—that's my fight story, my one and only fight, which uh, I think gives me lifetime credibility both as a film nerd and as a comedy nerd. Damn right. I uh, I've never. Okay, I'll tell this story. It has nothing to do with movies. I've never really been in a fight except with like you know my brother or something like that. But uh, I did get suspended in eighth grade for instigating a fight. Literally, <laughs> I was playing Iago, I guess, <laughs> where I just... My friend Israel and I just decided, you know what? Let's just uh, play Puppet Master for a little while. And we just went to this kid, Wes, and said this other kid, Jason. These guys are friends, by the way. And we just said, hey, you know what he said about you? He said this. And it was a total lie? Complete lie. And uh, Wes is like, oh, well, I don't like that. So he goes over, beats the hell out of Jason, who's this gangly little kid. Oh, God. And he just gets the crap beat out of you him. You are the worst Iago ever. I know. I know. And, just, and I, what's more, we had nothing against the guy that got beaten up. Nothing. And so we just... You're just bored. Yeah. That's... Oh. So that's... Your childhood the is like Mean Creek. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Um, but uh, especially because he wound up killing Jason and right, he ended up burying the body. Um, but yeah, so that was my... Uh, <laughs> some people are like, yeah, I got suspended for fighting. I'm like, I got suspended for convincing other people they should fight. Because cause that's the thing. At first, he's like, oh, why did he say that? And we're like, I don't know. You should go kick his ass. You know, because then we put the idea of fighting in his head and uh, and just said, yeah, you better go do it. That's what you need to do. So uh, The only time I ever got suspended, I got an in-school suspension in middle school for bringing a water gun on a field trip. Oh, my god! And gosh. I was shooting people on the bus with a water gun. <laughs> Mischievous David. But, uh... In school suspension, I imagine for most people, is probably hell. Yeah. For a loner like me, fucking great. I Whatever. Got, yeah. Got all my homework done in the first like hour and a half. Yeah. And I just like read books and magazines the rest of the day, and I had all three right. days of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, and then here's... oh, and my, the other punishment was that I wasn't allowed to go any on any more of the field trips for the rest of the year. Fucking score on that count <laughs> as well. You know, here's and here's the thing. My my eventual uh, punishment for this uh, was not cool. <laughs> uh, I wish it had been suspension because they gave my parents an option. <laughs> they said you can either have he can either have uh, I think two days suspension or one day of what's called shadowing, where literally my dad goes to school with me oh, and no. follows me around all day. That is quite that's, a punishment. Yeah, that's what they did. Doesn't that sound like a sitcom premise? It, yeah, it does. <laughs> And just in general, and it makes me wonder, like, I really at the time felt like, and I, I overheard my parents saying this, it's like, I, that, I bet most parents opted for the suspension because it's just like, because my dad had to, like, take a day off work yeah. to do this, you know? And so um, it wound up, oddly enough, you know, I tend to over, you know, because my dad's dead now, like, I tend to emphasize, like, the good things about him. But, you know, he was a flawed person. But on that day, he was as cool as he could be. He literally, like, when it came time to l- for lunch, he sat over in the corner uh-huh. and let me eat with my friends. 
you know, and it's just like he never identified himself in class. The teachers never did. He literally sat in the back of class. So he led you off kind of easy for the punishment because I can imagine. Hang on, now. okay. As far as the day goes, I he understood that it's like you know what it's important that he be punished. Blah blah blah, but. I'm not going to make this kid a social pariah any more than he already was. Um, but here's what he did. In every class, he took notes about what we were doing and all that kind of thing. And, man, for the next many months, I mean, uh-huh. he's just like, so are you doing this? Are you Because do-? he knew everything. Yeah. You know, it used to be, you know, it was just your parents know what you tell them. And, yeah. But, no, he's there. He knows what we're studying. And so, and he's like, oh, you know, I can help you with this. Oh, come on, dad. Oh, sinister. Exactly. So he was cool that day. I can day, imagine but... my dad would have tried his hardest to embarrass me. Oh, I don't doubt it. Because he was, he was definitely that kind of, like, he, he, my dad was the type of dad who the first time I ever got caught being drunk, yeah, my dad uh, woke me up 7 a.m. the next morning and made me do yard work <laughs> all day. It was, like, it was like October, I think, so I yeah. was just raking leaves and doing all sorts of yard work all day long, and it was horrible. It fucking worked. Yeah, I never got caught getting drunk again. There you go. Um, ah, good times, David. <laughs> Wistful. Um, so, all right. Well, that's the story. I, I'm, you know, I was fascinated that David actually got in a physical altercation over movies. Yeah, you know. And by the way, I think you. I think just in general, on principle, I think you won because anybody who's any any moron. Who's like making fun of you for liking Ghostbusters? Yeah, especially when you're that age. Like, there's nothing wrong with watching with loving Ghostbusters when you're that age. Yeah, you know, I loved it. But he was just spoiled because his, <laughs> yeah, because because his dad let him watch whatever. whatever and it he makes wanted. me wonder, actually, and I think you and I have probably had this discussion before, but I don't think we've ever had it on the podcast regarding R-rated movies. When did your parents, uh, you know, start letting you watch R-rated movies? Uh, officially, when I was 15. Okay. Um. My dad was a little more lenient, and um, especially if he had seen the movie. Yeah. Because uh, I watched, I mean, he, I watched Die Hard when I was like eight. Yeah. Because he decided there's, I mean, there's, there's essentially there's like one set of tits in the whole movie that you see for like half a second. Yeah. And, uh, you know, by by the time, when, when a boy is eight years old, yeah. the violent things that go on in his imagination. Oh, my. They far outweigh. Yeah. It's so like, violence isn't really, isn't, wasn't really a problem. And uh, Is anybody my, being disemboweled in <laughs> Die Hard? Because they are in my head. Right. Exactly. A lot. And, you know, he knew, he knew I was, you know, I guess mature enough to handle the uh, the swearing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah if, if he had seen a movie, he would be like, don't tell your mom I let you see this. And then yeah. we'd watch it. I think, uh, yeah. So I think I watched... Yeah, Die Hard, and I think like The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy, hmm. which I don't even really remember now. But yeah. I know I saw it, and I wasn't supposed to. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I can picture the cover. Um, yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's fascinating to me when I think back. Hudson Hawk was another one. I read a movie that my dad <laughs> let me watch. Cause, that was rated R? Oh, yeah. Huh. It's There's a lot of language in that movie. Um, okay. Sandra Bernhard's in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Which, uh, to my dad's credit... He liked that movie for the reasons you should like that movie because it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, and it's it's fun. It's it's a terrible. It's a ridiculous movie. It's terrible, but it's fun. I still, yeah. I mean, it is okay. It's it knows how ridiculous it is. So there's something to be said for that. Um, yeah, my R-rated movie. My parents were like nothing rated R unless, of course, it's a certain type of movie or something like that. It's uh-huh. like 
you know, it's like, oh, I want, you know, my class, we watched like the cleaned up version of Glory. And I so kind of want to, and I kind of want to watch it again. But there is no cleaned up version at the video store. My parents are like, "It's Glory." Okay, fine. By the way, I had, we watched the cleaned up g- version of Glory, but I by that point had seen it many times. Oh, yeah. As a result of hanging out with this kid, whose dad let him see R-rated movies. <coughs> but like, uh, so what I knew right when the guy's head was supposed to explode, and was severely disappointed when it didn't. <laughs> I would still, if I watched that movie right now, I could like do a T minus to when that guy's head explodes. That's <laughs> the best scene in that movie um the uh what got me eventually was that like my parents like after a while i think they just started like once they once i started getting older you know right around 14 15 uh i said oh can i rent so-and-so they're like what's it rated i'm like it's rated r and they're like well what's it about i'm like uh it's about this guy klaus von bulow who uh (laughs) you know like it's it's like it's about this guy he's a beekeeper he's played by peter fonda like you know it just Movies that, like, w- what is a 14-year-old doing watching Yuli's Gold and Reversal of Fortune? Yeah. And just it, and that's when they realize, like, you know what? I think uh, I think we're going to lift the ban. I think you're welcome to do whatever you want. <laughs> I remember when I was maybe 11 or 12, and my friend uh, wanted to watch The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah. Which I've still never seen. I and I didn't, your friend would want to see that. I didn't want to watch it then. Yeah. And I was like, oh, here's an easy way out of it. I'll ask my mom if I can see it. I know nice. she's going to say no. So uh, that's how I got out of watching the fucking bodyguard. One of my favorite stories to tell, and uh, I won't identify who this is because it is, it is a listener. But uh, well, don't you think he or she will know? Oh, he'll know. Oh, it's a he. Yeah. Damn it. So we've narrowed it down to ninety six percent of our audience. <laughs> Everybody except my wife. Um, but uh, no, we ju- you know we just got an email from a person named Anne. That's recently. right. Yes. Okay. I'm assuming that's. Uh, Stands to reason. Yeah. I assume it doesn't stand for Andrew. We've got a semi-regular emailer named uh, Genevieve. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's um, a great name. Again, I'm assuming. <laughs> I like <laughs> that. It's a great name. There are name. certain names that I'm just like, yes, good for you. I hope she's blushing right now. Did I ever tell you about the time? Okay, uh, another tangent. Did I ever tell you about the time I was working at Blockbuster? I forget if this was, I think this was in Chicago. Yeah, it was in Chicago because, you know, it would make more sense if it was in, in you know, L.A., but in Chicago, this girl comes up, hands me her, her card, I scan it, and her name is Bridget O'Shaughnessy. That's the, name <laughs> of, that's the full name of Mary Astor's character right. in Maltese Falcon. And I'm just like, your name's Bridget O'Shaughnessy? And she's like, oh, you've seen the Maltese Falcon. I'm like, and I've read it. And so <laughs> she's just like, yeah, my parents really like that movie. <laughs> and so it's like, and, oh. and they happen to be named... O'Shaughnessy, O'Shaughnessy, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you kind of, if you have the opportunity, you take it. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, um, damn, now I forgot where we were, uh, where I was headed. No clue. Damn. Oh, it's a story about uh, one of our male listeners. Oh, yes. So it was uh, a birthday. I believe I was, uh, I just turned 17. And uh, I had, at that point, see, already seen The Insider. But because of the Oscar nominations, it had just been re-released in the theater and I was like, oh, I want to see it again. And it's my birthday, and I'm 17. I don't need to go see it with my parents anymore. Um, and so I'm like, hey. There were like three friends. I'm like, hey, let's go see The Insider. And uh, this one friend, his dad was, you know, this was in Missouri, so he was a fairly conservative Christian guy. Didn't mm-hmm. like the idea of him seeing uh, Rated R movie. And I, And literally, it's just it's one of those things where 
you know, this guy did not have the same mentality that my parents did, which was literally, you know, literally it was just like rated R, no. And it, you'd want to be like, yeah, it's about big tobacco. Like, yeah, your son will be fine, you know. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> and actually it took, I think, I don't remember, I think my, I forget if my dad actually called him or like volunteered to call him and say, yeah. like, look, I've seen it, it's fine, you know. Um but either way, it eventually we eventually wound up going to see it. But I was just I was just fascinated by the idea. It's just like first off that a group of seventeen year olds want to go see the insider at all. But right. what's more, that like this guy's just like I don't think so. No, no, yeah. it's it's bothersome, and it happens a lot in the in the Christian world where they will people only see the rating and they refuse to acknowledge anything anything else. Well, I think we're going to talk about a couple R rated movies today. All and right. We need to get into it because um, we we've talked while. too long. Okay. Uh, so it's episode 60. Every 10 episodes, we do uh, a profile. That's right. Uh, and this one is on one of my favorite directors, yeah. uh, Chinese director Zhang Yimou. Zhang Yimou. Um, <coughs> probably, I would say probably best known to American audiences as the director of Hero yeah. with Jet Li, which we will get into in due time. Yeah. But... Um, I'm going to start, you know, at the beginning of his career. Yeah. Uh, and David's going to be talking quite a bit because I've not seen a lot of the, of his uh, early stuff. I haven't really seen a lot of any of his stuff. I've seen a lot of the big things. Uh, right. But uh, I'll chime in where I can. But as far as talking about the beginning, David's going to be filling in a lot. Well, I want to go way back before the beginning, before his first film. Um, okay. And I want to talk about him and uh, and Chen Kai-gi, who did Feral My Concubine. Okay. And the guy who made the blue kite, whose name I always, it's like Tian Juan Juan. I, I, okay. I always forget his name. But um, uh, people of that ilk are, uh, I- that movement uh, in in the 80s and in China are referred to as fifth generation Chinese cinema. Okay. I didn't do enough research to find out why. I don't, I don't know why it's called that. Okay. I'm sorry. I should have done more research. But, uh, <laughs> um, but essentially what, what they are is, um, here, just, Mini history lesson that most people probably already know. Uh, during um, the starting in the mid '60s in uh, in China, there was what's known as the Cultural Revolution, which is uh, essentially uh, a policy of oppression that uh, attempted to rid China of its uh, sort of any sort of liberal bourgeois culture and 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 basically any. <sighs> uh, they were trying to quell any of the. Uh, indigenous culture of the, uh, you know, of the art, the, the arts in general were were uh, were, were oppressed. Yeah, and um, so th- these guys, the 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 three that I named and some others, all they all graduated from the Beijing Film Academy in 1982. Yeah, they were essentially the first group of directors to begin working after the Cultural Revolution. Okay, uh, so this, so um, and, and that's basically it. The main thing that ties them together is just that they is, is just that that they all were working at the same time and they all were part of the same class. Um, there's not a, I mean, uh, there are some themes that tie them together. Uh, specifically, you know, the 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 theme of freedom, you know, because that was something that they didn't get a lot of during their while they were growing up. Uh, uh, but I, I just want to sort of set the table. Okay. Uh, with that, um, Zheng Yimou. He actually, because of the Cultural Revolution, he was not able to go to the Beijing Film Academy when a normal person would go to college. He, uh, when he was 27, he actually lobbied the government because obviously the the 
pretty much everything in China, especially at that time, is run by the government. Right. He lobbied the government to let him in and, and showed them, like, he, he was a photographer and, and stuff like that and showed them his work. And and uh, so he, he, he didn't start until he was 27 okay. uh, at school. And he was, he actually graduated, unlike Chen Kai-gi and the Blue Kite guy, <laughs> uh, he was a cinematography major uh, who, who uh, ended up only doing, like, four pictures as a cinematographer and then... Uh, basically because there weren't a lot of directors because of the Cultural Revolution, started directing. Hmm. Uh, so that, so that's what happened with him. That's the background on Zhang Yimou. And um, so his first film, I've not seen. And I'm sorry for that because I really want to see it. It's supposed to be fucking great, but it's not on DVD. It's hard to find. It's called Red Sorghum. <coughs> um, and it really, it, it's it, even ha- not having seen it, I'll talk about it briefly because it's important uh, in that it, was sort of the um uh I don't, I'm not sure what the the, the word is it, it was it, it was the the first bellow of this generation uh, okay. it won the golden bear which is the um Berlin Film Festival right. uh top award uh and it it just got it got so so much acclaim internationally yeah. that it it is in a lot of ways and with the first Chen Kai-gi film which which Zhang Yimou shot um which is called Yellow something, something yellow. I can't remember. Um, those are the films that really got the nation's attention, and and within uh, within film circles in the 1980s, as I understand it, I was pretty young then. But uh, um, all eyes were on the, these guys. The, yeah. the, this is a, a very important movement, um, and it also Red Sorghum is also his uh, first collaboration with the actress Gong Li. Which American audiences know from Memoirs of a Geisha and yeah. Miami Vice, uh, and if you only know her from that, I think I've said this in the podcast before. Don't judge her; she doesn't speak English very well, and she is she's an amazing actress yeah. who is uh, horribly misused in American cinema. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, uh, I say of course, but uh, Zhang Yimou sort of uh, Gong Li would be his muse for the first. Um, more than pro- about ten years of his of his filmmaking career, and was also uh, his romantic partner. So okay. Um, after that, he did a film that I haven't seen uh, called Codename Cougar, which um, he has uh, he has called his worst film. Oh, all right. He, he, so it's I have no uh, real desire to see it. Then in 1990, here we go. All right. Um, I go back and forth on what my favorite Zhang Yimou film is, okay. but this is always a contender. It's uh, and I'm, there's going to be a lot of listeners. There's going to be a lot of Chinese words today. Okay, I don't speak Chinese. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation on all of them. I'm pretty sure I got Zhang Yimou right, but let me know if I didn't. Um, right. This one's called Judo. Judo, but not not Judo, like right, right. not martial arts. It's J U space D O U. Yeah. Um, and uh, it really. Uh, it it really marked his uh, one of the main things that Zhang Yimou is known for, having been a cinematography student, is his is is his visual flair. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and Judo is now this is nineteen ninety. This movie was shot in Technicolor. Uh, oh, awesome! Which again, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I've only seen it on VHS. Even on the VHS, the colors are amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to see the DVD. Which they uh, just uh, two years ago uh, they released a. A new version of actually a bunch of his films after he made his name with Hero and right, right. and House of Flying Daggers they they put sort of a uh, 
an, an American like package of, of all his, his, a lot of his movies. So I can't wait to see the judo DVD, but, um, again, Gong Li is in it. Yeah. Uh, and this is, um, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to start, uh, definitely seeing this theme of, of, of oppression of, of basically the, the Chinese people not being able to, to do things, uh, yeah. because of, because of the tradition, because of the way things are. Um, Gong Li is. Uh, it takes place in, in like a textile mill. Okay. So a lot of the colors come from the dyes. There's vats of dye, which will end up being, playing a big part. Um, and there's you know big, huge ribbons of cloth hanging all over the place. It's it's beautiful. Uh, and I don't want to go too much into the story, or I don't want to spoil too much. But uh, Gong Li is sold uh, essentially to this um, the owner of the textile mill okay. uh, as a wife. And then ends up falling in love with and having an affair with a guy who works there, like the, a servant, like a, a house servant, textile mill worker type of guy. Um, and he gets her pregnant. The textile mill owner is impotent but doesn't know it. And so they pass it off as his child. Wait, and wait, what? He's Okay, I hate to uh, – I have not seen the film, so I don't know how it's handled. Uh, how can he not know he's impotent? Uh, I don't know if, if, if it's ever released. Really I think it's the implication because he has, I, I should mention this. Gong Li plays his third wife. He's beaten the two previous wives to death because they were oh. unable to produce a son for him or <laughs> oh produce my. a child at all for him. So okay. I think the implication is that he's impotent and he's blaming the wives. Oh, okay. Now by impotent, do you mean sterile? Is that what I mean to say? I think so. Impotent means, uh. He couldn't get it up at all? Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. I apologize. It's strikes sterile. I, I mean, I like the idea that a guy, that a character is so stupid that he's <laughs> impotent and furious at his wife that she's not pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, this is this is the, the theme. Essentially, I mean, if you, if you want to get it into allegory. Now, Zhang Yimou all, often says that there's no political subtext to his films, that it's obviously not true. He's, uh, he says that? Yeah, and and basically, I think the reason he's saying it is to avoid getting them banned, especially oh, okay. in the nineties with the Chinese government, which didn't always work. Some of his films still ended up being banned. Yeah, uh, you know, but un- especially, I mean, the guy who made the Blue Kite, whose name I will learn to pronounce someday, uh, he was like banned from making films for years. Oh my! So I think that that sort of fear was in Zhang Yimou. So he, I think, he wanted one of the films to speak for themselves, and, and right, he says right. there's no political subtext when there clearly is um so obviously i mean this these two people are in love this woman should not be married to this guy in the first place she was yeah. sold to him uh and they're unable to to express that to to people and furthermore they have a son together and the father the real father of, of the kid is never able to never for the, the whole movie the movie spans decades essentially or a decade and a half or so because the kid's a teenager by the end of it um He's never able to tell his son that he's his father. The son mm. grows up thinking, and the son ends up being kind of a prick, like the textile mill owner. I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to go too much more into the story, but yeah. uh, it's it's highly recommended, especially visually. Um, the year after that, 1991, Zhang Yimou would make the film that, within art house crowds or film buff, <coughs> film buffs, the the film that he is still probably most known for. And that's Raise the Red Lantern. Raise the Red Lantern. Okay. Now oh, you can talk. Time for Tyler to talk. Because you've seen it. Um, yeah. We, uh, I saw it in uh, film school. I saw it in Aesthetics of Film. 
So did I. I actually saw a film print of it. Yeah, I believe I did as well. Yeah. And uh, and it was fat. Now I'll say this: at the time, I didn't really care for it because it's just you know it wasn't the kind of thing I normally watched. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I'd say even a year later, maybe even months later, I was just like, you know what? I think that movie might have been genius. Like yeah. it just, you know, you go from one extreme to the other. Like when you just kind of realize there's more to film than what you know, and uh, it, it's. First off, of course, visually it's fascinating. That goes without saying. Um, you yeah. know, I'll talk more about that uh, as we go a little further down the line. But like, to me, I- I'm fascinated with the story. It's basically about you know, it's it kind of starts in a similar way to uh, judo. Yeah, where basically this very you know rich man who already has multiple wives takes a new wife. Yeah, he's got three, and she's he has the fourth, three, and she's the fourth. And uh, and basically... And it's Gong Li again. Okay, yes. And so all the wives kind of... They wind up jockeying per, for position. Like, if he decides that he favors this one tonight, then she will get this really, you know, this foot massage that doesn't really look that relaxing. But what, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, it just, they will be, you know, uh, treated favorably that evening. But then, of course, if that person, if that wife displeases him, then he'll just go to another one, and she'll be favored. And so that's the and thing. The, so, the way he marks which wife he has chosen for the evening right. is by hanging a red lantern in right. front of her uh, her quarters. I don't know yeah. where, where she lives. Um, and I, I, I learned this today. The, the Chinese, the direct translation of the title is Hang High the Red Lantern, which mm-hmm. I like. Yeah. But I also like Raise the Red Lantern for its alliterative qualities. Yeah, it's... So. <laughs> I know you like the alliteration, Dave. I do. Um, what's fascinating is that, and I feel like, I mean, when you said that he states there's no political, uh, you know, subtext to his films, my first instinct is like, what? Yeah. Then I'm like, oh, right, okay, he has to say that, otherwise he'll get And in this trouble. one was actually briefly banned. The, the ban was lifted shortly after, but this, okay. uh, the, the initial reaction by the government was to not release this film in China. But it did very well internationally, and I think that sort of put pressure on them. Yeah, because... What's what's really great is that it's just, I mean the there's clear. I like any movie that can that has you know a clear analogy, but also the characters themselves are real and you know fully realized and that kind of thing. But like the analogy here, I mean the the you know these the husband you know who's basically these characters master right. Uh, you you like never see him right. I mean yeah, at least. To the if you do see him, not enough for him to be a real character at all. Yeah, I mean, but he still has all this power over these women, and just and what gets me is like he has done such a good job at manipulating them that they never see him as the enemy. They never see right. themselves as being oppressed. They see themselves, each other, as right. their enemy. It's like, oh, I need to, you know, I need to. Trump this woman so I can be, you know, so I can be favored tonight. And they never give the thought to, well, what about tomorrow night? It's like, well, no, I just, I need it now. And, of course, that, I mean, that could be, uh, that's analogy for, I mean, any government, really. The yeah. idea that it just distracts its, uh, you know, its citizens with, you know, just these little things that they're fun for the time, whether, you know, 
Yeah. Whether in the in this case, you know, this nice little foot massage kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, that's oh, that's nice. I'm being favored today. But it's like, yeah, but you're still being freaking owned mm-hmm. by this guy. And it's just it's and it of course it has a fairly tragic ending as something like that always will. Yeah. Uh but it's just it's amazing. It's an amazing film that uh you know, and I feel like as a director, he's he's singled out for his uh for the the visual aspect, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they're absolutely stunning, but uh, but the story is really, I mean, heart wrenching. Yeah. You know, and and raise the red lantern. It's it's a movie that I did not appreciate. I, I compare it to like Werkmeister Harmonies or another movie I saw in aesthetics uh, called Last Year at Marienbad. Which uh, I've still never seen. Oh, I know, it's good uh, stuff. As a film buff, I should be a, <coughs> ashamed to admit that. And I'd say even Mulholland Drive. Movies that I just, they definitely were not what I was used to at the time. And I kind of wrote them off. And since then, I'm like, oh, wait, no, these are all brilliant. You know, and uh, Raise of the Red Lantern was kind of one of the first movies to kind of open my eyes a little bit to what movies could be. Because the tone of it was... Uh, I mean, I like very slow movies now, uh-huh. but the tone of it at the time even kind of frustrated me, you know. Yeah. Um, and I feel like maybe because it just—it's a haunting movie. I mean, it stuck with me even now. I mean, it's just a, an amazing film, and just—and I feel like maybe I—that movie was instrumental in teaching me to be like, hey, you know what? Not everything has to move really fast. Maybe that's how it should be. I mean, these characters' lives—they don't move fast. I mean, it's just day to day. They don't do anything except jockey for position. And so it is going to be a more med- meditative movie. So, yeah, so that's... Okay, David, you can say whatever you want now. Well, I think we've talked that movie. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, after that, um, I have not seen the story of Ch- uh, Chiu Ju. I don't know how okay. to say it, uh, but Gong Li's in it. All right. Um, 1994. Another one that uh, occasionally moves up to the number one spot in Virginia movie films for me is To Live. Okay. Um... Uh, you'll like it, Tyler, because it's the longest of his movies. All right. <laughs> you know, okay, hang on. Length does not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. <laughs> but it's what, it's what you do with it. Get uh, it? Yeah. It's a sexual innuendo. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Um, <laughs> you didn't realize it right away. No, right. I didn't until you pointed it out, because okay. I was actually uh, a step ahead thinking okay. about what I was going to say. But uh, it's essentially, it's a, it's an epic type movie. It starts with a uh, uh, a couple, the the woman was played by Gong Li, okay. um, uh, and it, it starts with them their first sort of getting married, and then at the, by the end of it, their grandparents. Okay, um, uh, and this um, this is a little thing I learned just today. Um, it was the first Chinese film to have its foreign distribution rights pre-sold, which hmm. uh, essentially means that by 1994, the Chinese cinema was really starting to have a, a voice in the world. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. Now, this one was definitely banned, and you can hardly even blame the Chinese government for banning it because right. it's uh, so clearly damning. Um, and uh, it's it's a really bizarre movie, and it's, it's really ballsy, and it's, uh, in a lot of ways, darkly comic, and it has a lot of the... Uh, um, it's you know almost like 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 Twenty One Grams you know people's lives intersecting like people characters keep like meeting each other in different ways you yeah. know but in a way that's it's it's like satire 
but you can't laugh at it because it's so horrible. Like what's happening is so horrible. Yeah, that's essentially what the movie is, which is why I consider it ballsy because it's a it's a long movie and it's like you know it's like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Like every bad thing that could possibly happen happens to this guy, and and that's what happens to this family. Hmm. Um, but but there are parts that um uh, when when I say them they will sort of of uh play as um as comedy but they're and when you think about them they're funny but they're not really that funny in the movie uh like uh basically the the character starts out very wealthy the main character then gambles it all away okay um and then so he's poor and he's shunned but then after the sort of revolution happens and Mao takes over him being poor is seen as very pro-communist and so he's Mm. held up as sort of a uh, a model citizen for, for the for the community. Um, that that's just one of the many things. Uh, uh, and then, like, there's a part later in the movie when his when, when the grandson's going to be born, and there are and they go to the hospital, but there's only nurses working at the hospital because all the doctors have been sent to prison for being reactionary academics. <laughs> uh, and then they they end up finding one doctor, but it turns out he's just come from dinner and has gorged himself on dumplings and keeps falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's sad in the in the moment, but it, it's it's funny as well. It's, right. it's it walks a very thin line, and, and uh, it's probably the most uh, of his films that I've seen. It's probably the most uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Heady. It's uh, it, the the I mean the visuals are there as they always are in his films, but it's uh, it's not the forefront. It, it's uh, it, it's his, it's 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 almost like uh, like an essay. Uh, you know, it's okay. Uh, and, and yeah, they. Well, let me ask you this. Actually, regarding the visuals, now the only stuff of his that I've seen are like you know period epics, where that are sty- you know very stylistic, and so of course he can play that up as much as he wants. So I haven't seen any of his films that could be called like you know modern or domestic, and it sounds yeah. like to you know to live is that. I mean, it's still so technically is... a period piece, but it's a twentieth century period. Exactly piece, right. Which I mean... is the same like as Judo and Raise the Red Lantern are twentieth century period pieces. Oh yeah, I guess. But I mean, like you think of Rise of Red Lantern as taking place a long time ago, but it, but I it guess takes it really does Nineteen twenties. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. But like, I mean, this. I mean, it's just, just regular people. I mean, how does he? I mean, there's nothing really. I mean, I guess in its in its length and its scope. I mean, there's it's epic in that right, way. But, but nothing as far really as, larger than life about right. It, as so you're like, saying. yeah, visually, like, how does he? I mean, how does his visual style? translate to that well he often um has like with red red lantern you know there's a lot of red it's a very red course, palette yeah. the sort of the palette for to live is, is a lot dustier okay. you know uh, it's 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 browner you know uh and it's 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 just as it, uh you know it's just as grand but maybe not as striking okay you know what i mean all right i mean that stands to reason i mean it's people living in squalor so <laughs> why why make it you know, grandiose and beautiful when their lives are not at all, at all beautiful. Right. So, uh, so what's next on your list here, David? Um, well, the next movie that he made that uh, again I haven't seen. It's another 20th century period piece. It's uh, Shanghai Triad. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a gangster movie. Uh, okay. Much like Chen Kaigi did uh, did a movie called Temptress Moon, which was another Shanghai hmm. period piece gangster movie, um, and just an okay movie. Not okay. Uh, we could do an episode on Chen Kai-gi sometime because I'm a big fan of his too. But he's got uh, he he's got more weak spots in his 
in his CV than <laughs> Zhang Yimou does. Uh, but um, so that's 1995. I have not seen it, but uh, it's um, he uh, his relationship with Gong, Gong Li is in it. But during the filming of it, they like broke up okay. and they wouldn't work together again for ten years. All right. So uh, that's worth mentioning. Um, then he did a movie called Keep Cool, which I haven't seen, okay. um, and is not widely available here. But hmm. um, it's uh, I think other than Codename Cougar, maybe it's the first movie that he had made that was contemporary that took place okay. when it took place. Um, after that, we're gonna g- there's a brief period, uh, two film period um, that I haven't seen. And it's essentially, I mean, it's referred to as a period because it's, it's in his work because it's older period pieces as opposed to the 20th century period pieces he was doing. Okay. Uh, it starts with The Road Home. All right. Uh, which, in which you would find his new muse, uh, Zhang Ziyi, okay. whom we know from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Right. Um, and then Not One Less. Not One Less is supposed to be amazing, and I have no good excuse for not having seen it. I yeah. just didn't get around to it. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, those movies are sort of seen as, I think, a companion piece because they came out very close to one another and they take place like, about the same by the same time. Okay. Um, by the way, I should mention, uh, The Road Home was Zhang Ziyi's cinematic debut. Okay. Red Sorghum was Gon Lee's cinematic debut. Hmm. He, he's like dis- essentially discovered both these actresses. Yeah, it sounds like with Gong Lee, I mean, she owes, not even just because he discovered her, but because every step of the way he's been bringing her along. I mean, yeah. I guess because they're romantically involved, but right. also just in general, like, sounds like she owes her career, every <laughs> aspect of it, to, to right. him for the most part. Right. Um, and then he made another contemporary movie called Happy Times, which is supposed to be good. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Uh, um, I haven't seen, I can't, I don't know why I'm being like, oh, you haven't seen it. I haven't seen really any of these. I've seen like his most, I've seen his most known films, you know. Which we're about to get to. Right. Um, in, well, uh, just released in China in 2002, not released in America in t- 2004. Right. He exploded onto this, uh, American yeah, or, or sort of reintroduce himself to uh, a younger generation of American <coughs> filmgoers with Hero. Yeah. Uh, this is a film that came out in 2002 in China and made, uh, you know, a big splash. It was, uh, I think it was like the most expensive movie that China had ever produced uh, mm. to, to, to that date. And um, uh, if you were, uh, you know, a film buff, or in a, especially into Asian cinema, in 2002, you fucking knew about Hero. Yeah. And you knew that Miramax had the rights to it. And they fucking sat on it for two years. And it was like, uh, you know, if you go, went on blogs and stuff, it was all over the place. You know, like, how do we get this movie released? And essentially, you know, I bitch and moan about how Quentin Tarantino annoys me a lot. But yeah. he was pretty instrumental in finally getting Miramax to let go of this film and yeah. and, and get it in, into theaters and uh, uncut. I think that was part of the thing was Harvey Weinstein was going to recut it or something. I can't imagine how. Uh, yeah, okay, you've seen Hero. What yeah. do you think? <laughs> All right, well, uh, so I've owned Hero for quite a while. Uh-huh. Um, it's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, like uh, Constantine, it was uh, going to be destroyed at Blockbuster, and I was like, well, I'll take that, you know, because uh, seems like the kind of thing I'd like. Why not? Yeah. And, uh, and I had not watched it, un- you know, until a couple of days ago. And, uh, you know, it's... I can safely say, and that's the thing is, you know, I'd seen Raise the Red Lantern already, uh-huh. uh, but then, you know, that was, a, that was several years ago now. Uh, but like with Raise the Red, uh, with uh, excuse me, Hero, 
um, I watched it, and I'm just like, and for, my first thought was like, man, I'm glad I own this. Good yeah. for me, um, having that kind of foresight. But uh, in general, I'm just like, wow, I've never. This is I, you know, I can be kind of hyperbolic sometimes, but I try to avoid it if I can. Uh-huh. This one, I, I had never seen a movie like it yeah. as far as as far as visually. I mean, the, yeah. you know, his use of color is reminded me, of course, of Peter Greenaway. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because this is a different, uh, unlike Razor Red Lantern or To Live, where there's like a, a palette for the whole film. Right. Different sections have different palettes. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's weird because it kind of has a, it has a Rashomon feel to it because yeah. it's different characters. It's not necessarily them saying, you know, it's not their perception of things. It's how they imagine things went. Yeah, uh, you know, and so each different perception has a different color palette that it and it, it is a wash in that. You know, I mean, yeah. I bring up uh, Peter Greenaway because in the Cook, the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, yeah, I mean each each uh, section of this restaurant has a different color. Right. Palette. Or we can talk about traffic. Yeah, mm-hmm. traffic. I mean, just but I mean this like his use of color alone just blew me away. But also just. He just finds so much. Here's the thing: you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, and I know that he was he was behind this movie. He likes movies like this. Uh-huh. He tried to make movies like this, you know, yeah. with, with Kill Bill. But and that's the thing is like as much as I think Uma Thurman really adds a great deal of weight to the Kill Bill movies. I really, I still feel like he never quite gets it because he always he's always making it a Tarantino film, and like yeah. there's like. Whereas Hero has so much poetry and just the characters completely believe in what yeah. they're doing. And, well, I mean, it's an interesting meditation on, like, government and peace and, like... Well, I'll get into that in a second. Okay. But I do want to talk about um, this this sort of uh, genre that it works in. Uh, <coughs> man, if you think I've butchered some Chinese words before... Okay. I'm about to really butcher one now. But it's, right. it's, it's, it's like, wuxia. Okay. And it's... Uh, I probably, that was probably awful, okay. but it, it's a genre, and it's comparable to the Japanese samurai genre right. or the American gunslinger yeah. genre, and and that's the thing that, that Quentin Tarantino misses when he tries to replicate it is that it says so much about the soul of the people of the country, right? Uh, you know, and and that's not what Quentin Tarantino is going for in Kill Bill, right? I mean, I think he, you know, and he, I, I feel like he was also trying to do his own thing, and and that's fine, you know, um, but like. I think he I think he saw like the action sequences which of course are choreographed beautifully. Yeah. Um and he's like, "Oh man, those are awesome. I'm going to use those." But it's like but there was none of the pageantry behind it, you know, in his in his films. I mm-hmm. mean, they were still really well executed, I would say. Yeah. But just like with these, I mean, you know, I I don't love Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, but you know, it kind of the fight sequences are staged very eloquently. You know, and that's the thing is like since you know, I so far in describing these action sequences, I've used the word poetry, pageantry, and eloquent. I mean, uh-huh. when's the last time anybody's done that? You know, I mean, it's just yeah. Well, Angley tried with Crouching yeah, Tiger, Hidden Dragon, yeah. and some and people I, think he succeeded. I I think with the with the actual like fight scenes, I think he succeeded to a certain degree. Um, but I think Heroes better. Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, and just uh, and what's what's great? I like any director who. It's kind of the thing where it's like it's like well I came for the for the visuals but I stayed for the story because the story yeah. of Hero is great. You know, and and 
and very complex. Very complex. I, I couldn't even recount all of it. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just this guy, you know, there's, China at this point is, you know, divided into like seven, like, you know, small kingdoms, I would say. And uh, there's this one kind of warlord ruler who is making war with all these other, with all these kingdoms, and he wants to unite them, you know? Yeah. And uh, and in the process, he has killed a lot of people. Yeah. And he's made a lot of enemies, and he is a very paranoid guy. And so this hero, played by Jet Li, comes into his presence uh, because this hero has killed three assassins, you know, yeah. three deadly assassins who have always had it out for this king. What and are the names? So, uh, Broken Sword. Sky. Long Sky. And Something Snow. Something Snow. <sighs> Damn. But it's, uh, and yeah, Jet Li's in it, but it also, Zhang Ziyi is yeah. in it. She plays uh, Broken Sword's mistress. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but Broken Sword is played by Tony Leung, and the snow is played by Maggie Chung. So it's, it's yeah. a, for Chinese cinema buffs, it's got a lot of stars in it. Yeah, and it's, and everybody is used, and it's really fascinating because, <clears throat> excuse me, David and I are both a little under the weather, so I apologize for the occasional <laughs> cough or sniffle. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what's fascinating is that, is the way the story unfolds, like, you first see, you know, one version of it, and uh, Broken Sword and Something Snow, uh, like, they're just, they're negative characters, they're kind of sleazy, they're just, yeah. they're petty, you know, and, and just, and you're like, and you don't like them, you want them dead. But then in in subsequent retellings of of, you know, what happened, I mean, you just see these, you know, this nobility. I mean, the character of Broken Sword emerges as this character who's like, oh my gosh, he's... He's essentially the heart of the movie. Absolutely. The, yeah. And you don't... And I... There's no way I thought he was going to be yeah. based on that first, you know, based on the first thing I saw. But, um... But I will say, there's a... All the fighting sequences are brilliant, but there's one part... And that's the thing, is... This this is what I'll say. This is what I what I came away with after this weekend of watching you know a couple of his films, is that there are there are very few directors who have total command of every aspect of their films, uh-huh. and I think he does. I mean, I think he's one of, yeah. The, the visuals are beautiful. We talk about Cronenberg a lot being yeah. one of those. Yeah, I'd say I'd say Orson Welles is one of sure. them, but like the visuals are astounding. His use of sound. Is amazing to mm-hmm. me. I mean, there's there's that uh, the fight between uh, Nameless, uh, which is Jet, Jet Li's Lee, character, yeah. Nameless and Sky, and it's yeah. raining and like and you can yeah. hear all the water droplets and stuff, and it's just. And I'll talk more about it when we get to uh, to the next movie, but like, it's just a everything about the the aesthetic is amazing, and then the fact that it's in service of a story that justifies it being so grand uh, is really saying something. Now, you have something to say about the story and the political ramifications. Yeah, the, that kind of um, again, he has said about this film that there's no political subtext. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not true. No, but not But it all. is, more than any of his films, it is, a, it is very tricky, Yeah, the political subtext here. And there was a lot of controversy about it. Yeah. I could, because, I could see that, yeah. 
Um, a lot of people were saying that he that he was supporting sort of the reunification of China with Taiwan or Tibet, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and trying to make it all one China. Um, and he, there's some speculation about this because he he withdrew the film from Cannes, hmm. uh, and he, uh, as uh, is his mo, he didn't say why. Uh, but uh, there's speculation that it's because he it was sort of uh, his way of protesting that because. Because hmm. he he doesn't I don't I don't think based on his other films and the other things he said I don't think that's his point of view yeah uh, that China should just conquer everyone and that that's going to make everything peaceful yeah. I think it's and I think interpreting that way is 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 some is sort of facile yeah uh, I think maybe it it just uh, has has more to do with uh, like a lot of his films even though this political subtext it is it's subtext and his films are really about humans and the human heart and, and, and the capability of humans um and and i and i think this film is sort of about uh the the chinese people uh going through a lot of awful stuff yeah and weathering it and i i i think yeah i think the film is supposed to be sort of a, a love letter to to the chinese people and i think it even i mean you mentioned that it has a human heart and so like there's there's political stuff, you know, and there's, you know, as you say, I, I absolutely agree, a love letter to China in uh-huh. general and uh, what the country's had to go through. But, like, in, but like, uh, <coughs> excuse me, eventually the, you know, we discover that the king, who is this, you know, he, in wanting the to, the emperor, in, in wanting to unite, you know, all these small kingdoms or whatever, yeah. uh, He's doing it so he can ha- eventually have peace. Like, yeah, he like it's a movie that that understand. Like there, you know, there are so many people talking about. It's like it's like intentions don't mean anything. It's all about actions, and then you know the road to hell is is paved with good intentions. Uh-huh. And he's saying it's like you know what? Sometimes intentions do mean something. Yeah, the idea that like this guy is doing things that you know he's hurting people, probably innocent people. You know, I mean, I, I know it's innocent people, uh-huh. but he's doing it for the greater good, you know, and some people would say it's like, well, why it's like, you know, when you sacrifice the individual for the greater good, then is the, is the greater good even worth it? And the movie says it is. You yeah. Know? Which and I don't necessarily agree with it. Right. But, uh, it's a, it's a fairly unpopular stance, especially I'd say in this country. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's an intelligent, it's an intelligent movie and it's worth yeah. giving uh, a minute or two because it, because it does, you know, that's the thing. It, it does show both sides. Absolutely. You know, um, it winds up being, you know, falling on, on, uh, you know, the side, uh, it winds up taking a side, but it still examines both of them, I'd say fairly completely. So yeah, it, it really just, it, it bowled me over. I mean, I figured, I knew it was going to be really good and really interesting to watch, Uh but I mean, it just really, I'm like, you know, I've on this list of movies, I haven't, I haven't seen very many. Right. And, but the fact is. I'm absolutely going to go back and watch as many of his movies as I can because yeah. they're so – what I've seen is so fascinating. Yeah. So we'll move on. Well, now we're going to move on to uh, – this is the – even though he's got two movies after this one, this is the last one of his that I've seen. Right. Uh, and there's kind of a reason for it. Uh, it's House of Flying Daggers. <coughs> House of Flying Daggers. Yeah. Which is his second film in the wuxia yeah. uh, genre and a film that I was frankly really disappointed by. I watched it last night, and uh-huh. it certainly is... It's no <clears throat> hero. N- not by a long shot. But, uh, you know, it, it 
of course, has his standard, you know, the visuals are beautiful. But I like that he's not trying to make Hero again. I mean, yeah, the colors... I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's more of a love story. Yeah. And it's it's more melodramatic, which, I mean, he's done, I mean, you, you could definitely call To Live a melodrama. Yeah. Um, but, well, let me, uh, I'm going to agree with the Chinese critics here. All right, then. Uh, the film was fairly well received here. Yeah. Uh, in China, it was pretty much panned. Okay. Uh, and um, the the reasoning was that they thought that uh, that that Zhang Yimou, Yimou was um, pandering to the Western audience, hmm. uh, giving them what they wanted. There's more, way more CGI in this movie than uh, in Hero and in that, anything yes. else that he's done. Um, and I pretty much agree. It it doesn't feel like. Story story wise, he's not trying to recreate Hero, but it right. seems like he's trying to 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 uh, keep in in that in that vein. Like he's 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 hidden he's hidden artery, and he wants to try and write it in, and it's kind of been it's kind of bled out to keep that metaphor I could, going. I could I could definitely see that, but I w- what I will say is that like you know when a <clears throat> like the worst you know we made this comparison earlier, the worst Orson Welles film still pretty good. You know right. what I mean? And that's so like when I think of yeah, I mean this is. You know, of the movies of his I've seen, which there's not very many, but like, it's my it's my least favorite. Um, it does now that you mention it. I mean, it occurs to me. It's like, yeah, there is quite a bit of CGI, a yeah. lot more than I am comfortable with. Yeah. I think he uses it to a pretty good effect. Yeah, but um, but it's one of those things. Like, do we really need to see every dagger from the point of view of the dagger as it flies through the air? You yeah, know? it's like by all means, if something really big and important is going to happen. Then yes, fine. You that. know, it's a movie. Uh, you know, I say it disappointed. It, it's sort of like The Departed kind of disappointed me. Yeah. But if you said, "Hey, let's watch The Departed," I'd fucking watch it right now. Oh, and I would totally watch House of Flying Daggers again because it's yeah. fun. And and I would say what I was talking about with his use of sound. I would say, I like it applies with Hero, but I'd say even more so with this. I mean, like there's scenes where just the attention to detail with sound is it's unlike anything I'd ever seen. It's the kind of thing where I'm like. Oh right! This is why there is a sound Oscar because, right. like, you know, there's the part where, like, you know, uh, one of the, I forget who the actor is, but he's like throwing beans. Oh yeah, you know, and like you hear the beans and all that. And to me, like, the absolute like the thing that just that I love is when like all these warriors are throwing like these bamboo spikes. Yeah, but of course they're hollow. So as they throw them, you hear like this this hollow sound, and of course. When there's dozens being thrown, you hear the sound, like the physical sound that it makes when it, you know, hits the ground. But you're also hearing an unusual sound, not just the usual, like, you know, as Uh it goes through the air. You're hearing, like, this very hollow sound that I can't replicate, of course. But this is, again, my problem with the movie. With Hero, even though the the action sequences are long and, and, and fascinating, but I always feel like the movie is being propelled forward. And House of Flying Daggers felt like... A sh- essentially a short movie that I kept pausing to watch fight scenes. Yes, I would say that's that's about right. Just in general with most action movies, even if they're, you know, movies uh, as, I would say, kind of graceful uh-huh. as these, uh, you know, after a while I'm just like, oh, they're uh, they're fighting again. <laughs> Seems a little odd. You know, and just stuff like, uh, you know, there's a part where these two characters, these two old lovers are, like, reunited, and then, like, they play like this little game where one of them blindfold is blindfolded and he has uh-huh. to like throw a dagger and it looks cool but it's just like yeah okay let's, yeah let's move on yeah but i you know i still like it i mean like you said it's it's a movie that's just like 
you can only you can only fault it when you compare it to his other movies. Like yeah. compare it's yeah. you know people have said this like you know it's like the worst episode of The Simpsons. It's like yeah, it's still yeah, good. still better than most of what's on TV. So, uh, so yeah, I haven't seen anything past that uh, either. Yeah, well, we should probably just about wrap up anyway. The, uh, his two films since then are, uh, as I understand, a return to the uh, the Road Home, not one less sort of right. uh, very old uh, yeah. period pieces. It's uh, one is called Riding Alone for Thousands of Miles, right? Which is a title I love. I love because that title. it's fucking daring the audience to watch it. It sounds <laughs> like such a boring movie, but it's it's a poetic title. It does sound like a Jim Jarmusch film. I'll right. say that. Um, um, and then the other one is the Curse of the Golden Flower, which is notable because Gong Li's in it. Yeah, she's back. She, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that's, and that's the thing. So I've only seen, I mean, I've only seen three of his movies, but I'm. Absolutely astounded. I mean, it, and I guarantee you, a few weeks from now, you probably will have seen more. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. At the very least, because I have more rented, and I want <laughs> to make, I want to get my money's worth. But like, you know, it's it's just film continually astounds me. I mean, there's like something that I like to think I learned in film school and am continuing to learn is that no matter how much you know, you can always know more. No matter how many filmmakers you love, there's always room for one more. Uh-huh. You know, and and by virtue of these three films, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. And I'd say one of the best working, you know, Um, or at least has the potential to be. Sure. You know, and just, uh, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm excited to watch more. And uh, I I highly recommend those who who haven't seen really any of his movies, please go out and watch them. Well, that's a good note to end on. Absolutely. Let's wrap it up. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.